Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to the Anthro Alert podcast, where we take our live show from USF Bulls Radio and publish it for you as a podcast for you to listen to at your convenience. So whether you're sitting at home, driving in a car, or you somehow stumbled upon this and you don't know where you're at, you're going to listen to Anthro Alert, and it's about anthropology and it's super cool. So I hope you enjoy it. Hey Bulls, you're listening to Bulls Radio, WSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. It's 3 o'clock, Friday afternoon. It's a little it's a little cloudy, may rain this afternoon, but you're listening to Anthro Alert and we are back after a weeks-long hiatus, um, after a, <laughs> a quite stressful time. Um, dealing with natural disasters and hurricanes and such. Um, we're a little bit more tired than usual. We're a little bit more stressed than usual, but we are here nonetheless. <laughs> and we have a special guest with us this afternoon, which I will introduce shortly. Just as every week, um, this is a show about anthropology and why it matters. Each week we'll discuss how anthropology is relevant, and over time we'll feature various guests from the Department of Anthropology to discuss the research and have them weigh in on everyday topics or current events. We believe that this is a good opportunity for us as anthropologists and as students of anthropology to better connect with the USF community and to raise awareness of the value of an anthropological perspective. Uh, we like to preface our show every week um, with the notion and the disclaimer that the statements that we make and the opinions that we express on uh, Anthro Alert are ours and are alone and are not necessarily representative of anthropology as a discipline or the USF Anthropology Department um, or USF or student government and all the other stakeholders that I forgot to mention. So without further ado, we'll go ahead and start the show and try to return to some state of normalcy and daily routine as we kind of try to pick up the pick up the pieces of of the prior week. <clears throat> so like I said, we have a special guest this afternoon with us, um, Laura Kilstrom, who is a PhD MPH student here in the Department of Anthropology. She has previously received a bachelor's and a master's degree from the University of Helsinki in Finland with a focus on agriculture and forestry. Uh, previously to joining the department, she, is, uh, she spent the last year, um, well, before she joined the department, conducting and mon monitoring and evaluation research for an agro for agribusiness um, induced, gr induced growth programs in Ethiopia. Um, and so maybe she'll talk about that more. And so her research uh, now has expanded from global food security to include topics such as health and stress, resistance, resilience, and race and ethnicity, all those great anthropological terms. Uh, her research projects um, within the past year or so have been concerned with food insecurity in the Tampa Bay region, which we'll be discussing further um, throughout the show. So I want to welcome Laura to Anthro Alert. Thank you, Spencer. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us. I know that it's been a stressful time for everyone, so hopefully we'll have a good conversation and be able to relax a little. <laughs> Absolutely. How Sounds is, good. How has the last week been, been for you? It's been exhausting, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, so we, my family and I, left Tampa because of the hurricane. Yeah. And mm -hmm. we drove across the country for over 2,000 miles. Yeah. 
I heard that the the highways were just a nightmare and just bumper to bumper most yeah. of the way. Yeah. Yeah. My uh, my girlfriend and I chose to to stay here um, and just kind of batten down the hatches and hold down the fort and see what happens. It turned out okay. Um, but yeah, just. <laughs> It, yeah, um, in hindsight, that's what we should have done as well. Uh, but it's difficult to make ne- those decisions. You yeah, know? you never, you never know. You know, it's like you hear different things from different people, and then the news and stuff. You just, you know, you don't know what <laughs> what to do. Right. Um, so we're a little more tired than usual, a little more stressed than usual, but we're here. <laughs> we're here. That's what matters. That is what matters. And I hope I hope you all out there, if you're a Florida resident, weather the storm and are safe and have minimal damage to your surrounding area. So let's just put that aside and kind of hop into a different subject. So, Laura, first, I would like to ask you... Um, because you have a little different background than most of the the professors or students that we have on the show, is how you made your transition from from forestry and, and doing development work and, and agriculture to um, getting a or pursuing a PhD in anthropology. It's a great question, and I ask myself that a lot as mm. well. Um, so I got my master's six years ago already, mm. and I specialized more in the sort of um, food systems approach mm-hmm. uh, so my major was agroecology oh, okay and then for the uh, two years before I started grad school here I worked in Ethiopia in the project you talked about earlier and um, I think there's been a part of me that always wanted to learn more about the the why mm-hmm. behind everything and why people act the way they do and um, how social structures and um, cultures affect our decisions sure so I started looking for grad school programs and without specifically looking for anthropology, mm-hmm. I, I was just led to that discipline because sure. the keywords I used and my interest really led me to programs that were specialized in anthropology. So mm-hmm. it all made sense. I feel that a lot of the experiences I had um, and the stuff that I was interested in naturally fell under the right. title of anthropology. So you just kind of began searching and then... Um so when you stumbled across anthropology, then you just started doing like deeper research into into the field and sort of what it meant and what it was about. And exactly. Okay. And then, so how did you you looked at several other programs besides USF? So what specifically attracted you to this program here? So I I found an advisor I would was willing to work with and he was really a perfect fit Mm -hmm. i mean his interests were aligned with mine Mm -hmm. and i love the applied focus of the program too right yeah that draws a lot of people in right and i also felt (coughs) that there was a sort of um i don't know how i got this information but it felt like the department would be open towards um students from other disciplines than just anthropology Mm -hmm. because i know that uh that transition would be more difficult to make in finland Mm. It's a smaller country, and I feel that um, scientific disciplines are um, more siloed mm. in a way. So it would have been a harder transition for me there. Sure. What is the state? Of, do you know what the state of anthropology is like in Finland? Is it like? Um, yeah, it's 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 vibrant. It's obviously much smaller than here, yeah, but right. I think anthropology is um, well, like anywhere. Um, there are financial constraints on sure. on humanities and social sciences. Yeah, <laughs> it's but, uh, not just in the U.S. No, <laughs> no, for sure. Um, yeah. 
but they're they're active. They there's a really popular uh, anthropology blog from the University of Helsinki and other hmm. researchers. So that's definitely, great. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, kind of speaks to like the the new. Um, I think it's a subfield like the the world anthropologies that's starting to um, starting to become popular of um, branching out and discovering anthropologists that aren't necessarily in in the UK or, right, or yeah. the US. What's unique about the US system, of course, is the four field approach. Yeah. So we, we, we get exposed to a lot of, you know, biological anthropology, mm-hmm. linguistic, archaeology, right. cultural. Were I to do a PhD in Finland, I, I wouldn't meet, let's say, biological anthropologists on such a regular basis. Uh, okay. Because it's structured differently. Sure. Okay. Um, Keeping or shifting the conversation a little bit back over to um, to your work um, in development before you came here. So how how do you think your your work that you did previously in your career in Ethiopia um, kind of steered what you are researching now at at USF or um, as an anthropologist? So I I worked a lot um, on topics related to food security Mm -hmm. and we published a book on that in Finland. Uh, focused more broadly on global food security, and I continue to do research on those topics here at USF and in Tampa Bay, but on a more local basis. Right. Mm-hmm. And what the what the added value of anthropology now is that I, you know, we do we, we go where the people are, we meet the people, and try mm-hmm. to learn from that. Um, mm-hmm. And then my experience in Ethiopia, of course, is um, I think it's got everything to do with. Uh, what I do now because anthropology is cross-cultural. We're mm. interested in people mm-hmm. um, uh, from all types of cultures and countries. Right, right. So that was sort of, I don't know, it almost felt like I I was doing anthropology without knowing anthropology existed when I was mm. in Ethiopia. Yeah, I think, I think that's interesting. I think that, you know, a, a lot of people end up realizing that and then kind of getting into anthropology, but I think... And what this show, what this show, like Anthro Alert, tries to do is is make people realize that you know that may not be. So they're using anthropology or taking an anthropological perspective, but they don't realize that it's an anthropological perspective. Right. And so you know that that's what we're trying to do here is kind of show people that you know maybe you are doing that or you know it's a it's a value to what maybe you are already doing. Absolutely. Um, anthropology sneaks up on you whether you know it or not it does and we should <laughs> we should take pride in our discipline <laughs> we should uh we definitely should so we uh, you mentioned that you're doing these same types of of research or approaching these same questions in, in um, food security here locally and i know that your anthropology advisor is dr Hemelgreen, correct so we actually had him on the show two weeks ago um before uh we canceled the show last week and he was talking to us about his uh, work with the Hunger Action Alliance. Um, have you been working with them? I have. Okay. Yes. What kind of projects have you been involved with them? So two projects um, this past year. The other one was focused on uh, food pantry clients. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of food pantries across the country are now uh, trying to um, establish nutrition programs. Mm-hmm. In other words, they're trying to provide healthier foods to people who depend on food pantries. Sure. So yeah. we set out to ask, you know, if food pantries increase the amount of fresh produce and other sort of healthier foods, mm-hmm. do they actually get used? Um, what happens to those products in the household? That project was called Last Mile, and we're just wrapping it up right now. And the second project is called Factors Affecting Health in Older Adults. 
and it's a cooperative study between USF and um, Humana and Feeding Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at, you know, the linkages between uh, food insecurity, loneliness, and social isolation mm-hmm. in an elderly population. That's really interesting because I, I don't think that's a maybe a connection that's made very often. Uh, can you kind of uh, elaborate a little bit more about what you guys looked at and maybe um, what you guys found from that? Yeah, so we're interested in... Actually, the study is still ongoing, okay. so I can't tell you about the results yet. Sure. Uh, we've So far, we've um, talked to almost 250 older adults in the Tampa Bay area. So we asked them questions um, related to food insecurity, and we're also doing a survey using, um, you know, validated um, tools on how, you know, for measuring social isolation and um, feelings of loneliness. And uh, some literature suggests that there is a connection between being food insecure and uh, suffering from social isolation or loneliness, and these are often intertwined. Mm-hmm. So we're we're looking to, to see if there's, if we can confirm that linkage, and we're also doing more uh, qualitative individual interviews to really get to like in depth to the topic. Do you think maybe some of that social isolation and loneliness could be the stigma attached to maybe using a food pantry or being food insecure in the first place? For sure, and that links back to the other study I was talking about, the last mile. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, some of the results that we got from that study, um, as as usually happens in research, you you find out stuff that you didn't know you were looking for. Right. So in the last mile study, people often talked about the emotions that come with being dependent on food pantries. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of shame. There's a lot of stigma. Sure. Yeah. No, nobody um, really wants to depend on food pantries, but that's a reality for many people in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also this uh, social aspect in going to a food pantry, which we recognized in some. Um, focus groups and interviews so in the pantries where people feel they're respected they're treated kindly um, the clients feel much more comfortable going there and they actually might meet people so Mm. some of the clients said that you know the people you meet at the food pantry almost become your family sure so we hypothesize that a, a positive interaction at the food pantry may actually also act as a way to as, as a positive social interaction that, right. that may be important. You know, feelings of sort of empathy or having people around you that are going through the same sorts of experiences and then kind of finding solace and in, in kind of sharing those experiences and knowing you're not alone and, you know, this, this type of stuff. Precisely. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, you know, and I, I'm kind of going back to my, our conversation with Dr. Hemmergreen where he was talking about... Um, one of the studies I think you guys were focusing on on teenagers or, or younger adults, and I think that could be specifically, you know, that could be a group specifically kind of isolated or lonely maybe because college-age students at least or high school-age students, a lot of your bonding may be over food or going out for food. Um, and so if you're dependent upon a food pantry, you may not have that disposable income to go do those types of things, and then um, that kind of messes with your your socio-cultural environment and your ability to make friends and, and have that interaction. You, you bring up a really important point. Uh, college students are actually, or have been like an understudied population, mm-hmm. suffer, um, dealing with food insecurity. And those aspects you bring are absolutely true. And previous studies suggest that, um, you know, being food insecure often 
means that you have less money to use, right? So you start to skip social events. There's stigma to visiting food pantries. Yeah. And we also have these, you know, cultural ideas of the starving college student or students sure. only living on noodles. And they're yeah. almost like these funny jokes that we take for granted. But for many college students that might actually be chronically food insecure, um, it, it's not... Um, something that is the result of individual behavior right I, f- i feel like even i mean in the u.s it's almost like a rite of passage right you're a college student you're supposed to be broke <laughs> you know you're living off of peanut butter or ramen noodles whatever it's a rite of passage like everyone goes through it and but i mean it can be like you said chronically it can become a serious problem <laughs> exactly and and what's also important to distinguish is that you know we there you You may experience uh, short-term food insecurity in college, but mm-hmm. you still have networks to tap to. Yeah. But what's really worrisome is students who, uh, who, who've already experienced adversities in their life, and mm-hmm. that that path if that continues in college, it may have um, really bad. Um, I mean, it it may impact their graduation or their right. GPA, whatever. So. Right. 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 So yeah. there are these multiple levels we have to see that, you know, there's short term food insecurity, but the the chronic long term, even uh, intergenerational food insecurity is the really worrisome trend. Right. Like even subpopulations of college students that, like you said, college students that have networks, you know, can depend on their family or, you know, extended friends or whatever. But, you know, college students that may not have that support system or, like you said, may have come into college already experiencing food insecurity in their family, perhaps, or, you know, there's a lot of factors playing into this, but not everyone is affected the same way or, you know, suffers the same issues. Exactly. And that's why anthropology is is, is so great, because we could use indicators such as, you know, income to analyze the situation of uh, college students, Mm -hmm. but that's never the the whole picture right right we, we tap into informal and formal social networks and you know you have to ask people questions to to tap into that right for actually one of you know a previous class that i took um i kind of looked at this uh college students and a lot of the sort of the burgeoning um increase of college and food insecurity in college students was because you know there's the advent of non-traditional students And so, you know, not everyone that's an undergraduate now is is starting out as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, you know, continually. We have students that are starting out to get a bachelor's degree that are adults and perhaps are married and have a family and things like that. So if you're a non-traditional student, food security can even become more of an issue, you know, because you're already perhaps relying on a shorter network um of of individuals or you exactly know, or you have dependents or things like that yep. so you know i think we still have this notion that a, an undergraduate is someone fresh out of high school perhaps and that's not always the case that's so true <laughs> yeah yep yes these sweeping definitions often right often do that right so it's as always it's a complex issue with many questions and even more answers that <laughs> That, that come along but i think we're going to take this opportunity to um, take a short music break and we will be back with laura to discuss some of the projects that she has been involved with hey bulls you're listening to wusf 89.7 hd3 tampa 1620 a.m on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org 
You're listening to Anthro Alert, and we are back talking to Laura Kilstrom. She is a PhD and PH student here at the Department of Anthropology. And if you're just tuning in, then we have been talking about Laura's work with the Hunger Action Alliance and her research or her work on projects researching food insecurity locally in the Tampa Bay area. So we're going to transition the conversation a little bit to um, her dissertation research um, or what she what she plans to do for her dissertation research. It's still a little ways out, but we're going to we're going to talk about those ideas a little bit. Laura, um, what do you what are you kind of planning on doing for your dissertation? So I I started the program with a super clear idea in mind. I was absolutely sure that I wanted to study the dietary acculturation mm-hmm. of immigrants in the United States and what dietary acculturation is um, uh, it means the sort of level of it's measuring the change in an di- immigrant's diet mm-hmm. upon arrival to, to the U.S. Right. And the populations I am going to be working with are the Finnish people here in Florida. Okay. There are um, large Finnish populations in this state. Wow, I didn't know that. Apparently nobody knows that. It's That's like interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and then the Ethiopian Oromos here in Tampa. Okay. And um, well, yeah. So I had a clear project in mind, and now that that's shifting a bit. So the populations are the same, but mm-hmm. I'm. It's going to be more of a health project. Okay. Because I'm doing the dual degree, my PhD in anthropology and right. MPH in maternal and child health. Okay. So I'll, I'll be looking at. Um, the different immigrant experiences and the immigration backgrounds and how that relates to their health here today. Mm-hmm. Um, stress levels among immigrants and also what sort of cultural practices, social practices might buffer from adverse health outcomes. Sure. And it's shifted partly uh, due to the classes I've been taking, the readings I've been yeah. doing uh, right. after arriving here yeah. and looking at things from a more critical race perspective Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. and the idea that you know who is the who is the right type of american and what do you have to do to uh quote unquote assimilate into the country sure and what that means those are really interesting questions especially in our sort of our political environment currently or even our social environment you know like what does it mean to be an American or um, what should your status be or your identity be to be able to claim yourself as an American or, you know, all these different um, questions, like you said, of, of critical race theory, but also, you know, race, ethnicity, nationality and, you know, all these factors. It's it's quite interesting, especially, you know, um, kind of tying it into to food and health yeah. um, and, and things of that nature. Um, yeah, and uh, for me, it's been a the the shifting of my research interest from the original plan. It's been a powerful lesson in how how much our questions in science and and academia in general are influenced by the world around us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I try to keep that in mind when I read older texts too. That every th- the questions we ask at a certain point of time are very much influenced by what's happening around us right right in the world and that happened to me too Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that happens to to most people you know your original idea or you know what you come in 
or write your personal statement about to get into grad school is is great you know um but <laughs> more likely than not it's going to be different by the time you graduate yep. or by the time you write your thesis i know that happened to me and you know there's a lot of different factors whether you can't contact the certain population you want to work with or yep. um you know other extenuating factors but um, you know, like like you said, just take being exposed to the literature or, or taking these classes, hearing other others' perspectives. Um, I know that that's what happened to me as as well as just kind of like having the same questions, but sort of reevaluating or having you know being still interested in your original idea, but sort of putting that on the back burner and and asking these other questions um, now at least. Right. Yeah. Right, and I think, um, and. I advice I got from one of my professors was that, you know, you're you're the only person that, you're the one person that's going to be conducting this research and it takes a long time yeah. of commitment, so it's got to be something that you feel very motivated about. Yeah. So it's important to follow those hunches of, you know, feeling energetic and super interested about a topic. Right, yeah, that's what I've also heard too or, or read. Um, basically, like, if you get if you get deep in the literature and you're, like, writing your proposal and you're already sick of the idea, then it's probably not the right idea because you've only just started. Um, if you're exhausted before you even <laughs> have submitted your proposal, you should probably reevaluate yep. what, you know, what you choose to research because... Like you said, you're spending, even as a master's student, you're spending a lot of time either reading and or conducting research, you know, um, writing your thesis. And for a dissertation, it's even longer. So <laughs> if you're if you're not truly interested or dedicated to what you're doing, it's just it's going to be exhausting for you and yeah. it's going to be a grind. <laughs> it is. Um, there's a quote from a research methods book I'm reading for a class. And um, I think the author wrote something like you know research is an inherently messy process and it's only tidied up when we write about it and yeah. i think that's very accurate mm -hmm. i think so because your initial like the initial process of doing research is, it j at least for me is like at well first it's kind of overwhelming because you're like where do i even start <laughs> you know and then as you, you write a proposal and then you do research and you kind of like find answers to questions you weren't even asking like we we were talking about before and then you know, right. kind of put it in an at least a semi-neat little package in the form of a thesis and yep. a dissertation yeah yeah but um i'm currently in the early stages of, of my thesis as well of kind of like reaching out to um research sites or uh reading the literature and you know eventually do my proposal and so i'm getting a small taste of what these mm -hmm. what these things are like <laughs> it's exciting and i think the most interesting part is always being in the field actually mm -hmm. doing research and yeah for me uh, being able to do research during the first year of my phd studies was really a great opportunity because you really gain insight um by talking to people yeah and that's that that for me that's the only way to connect with the literature too mm -hmm. yeah that's yeah that's really where the magic happens um it, because for me, um, sort of as a starting graduate student, uh, I kind of struggled with um, these papers that were, you know, really theoretical and, and kind of like abstract concepts, which is great. I can, you know, intellectually, I can understand that. But it's hard um, for me since I don't have 
you know, I have internship experience, but I don't necessarily have work experience as extensive as what you've done before your PhD. So it's hard to kind of ground some of these concepts um, in sort of like in relevance, but also in, in daily happenings and whatnot. Um, and so it's nice when you actually start doing your research and then you read these papers or reread these papers and you're like, OK, that, you now know, I, makes sense. now that makes sense. Or I, I like I understand why he's saying that or you know on the converse you can say well you know this isn't really like he's saying it is or you know like you tweak this part of it or whatever you know everything that's where the magic happens and then everything starts to just kind of make right? sense i I'll, i try to keep that in mind like whenever i i start feeling despair or you know you know if you read too much and and the world is world just appears to be a gloomy place if yeah. you just mm-hmm. read and read and read yeah but you got to go out there to talk to people mm-hmm. that's for me you've you've spent too much time just reading if you start feeling that despair yeah yeah um yeah i can i can relate to that um i think uh other disciplines might do this too but i think anthropology can be particularly guilty of being sort of gloomy or doom and gloom or like um very very critique esque you know of of things which is it's fine like there's there's a place for for critique but it also can be kind of emotionally sort of like exhausting in the fact of like <laughs> the world what is happening <laughs> for sure yeah and i and it's so natural it's a natural reaction right yeah. but mm-hmm. i i i try to critically assess that feeling as well yeah um you know i think feeling hopeless is also a privileged reaction yeah, that's yeah, that's an interesting. Because right? when of you and and we often talk about hopeless situations or hopeless people, but the people in those situations still try to somehow get on with their daily lives. So right. For us to label that as hopeless from from an academic ivory tower is is problematic. That's true. Because yeah, I mean, from because if you're if you step back from you know the situation of course we can say like how terrible these situations may be but if you're living that situation you can't just crawl under a rock and <laughs> and say i give up you know and a lot of people you know w- whatever community you may be talking about or country or you know whatever you know people may not always have that same perspective of yeah things are bad but you know i still have my family like we have food like it's you know it's fine like exactly yep. yeah and you know, even with, with that being said, I do think it's important for, like, one of the core tasks of anthropology for me is to amplify the voices of those who are often marginalized mm-hmm. in in our discussions of society and the people we we describe as masses of you know poor people, working right. class people, mm-hmm. refugees, and it's our job as anthropologists and other social scientists to amplify their voices bring those voices forward uh, to to these um, societal discussions how are you how are you going to kind of um approach questions like that or similar questions in in your dissertation research or how how would you like to do that i would like to produce something that that doesn't just end up in the library shelf mm-hmm. so producing something that um, can be understood by the public okay so either yeah, that's a, important either a book or um, 
a booklet, something for the communities I'll be working with. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, producing something that's public. So going back to, so you'll be working with the Finnish population and then an an Ethiopian population here. How are you... Um, how are you looking to either compare, contrast, or look at these situations of of these? I mean, fairly fairly different right. populations. Um, you know, uh, just kind of comparing the countries of, of Finland and Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And well, first of all, their um, their migratory backgrounds are very different. Mm-hmm. So, the Finnish immigration to the U.S. started. Um, in the 19th century, increasing in the early 20th century. Right. Most of them coming here as economic migrants, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, um, the Ethiopian Oromos have arrived here uh, largely as political refugees and asylum seekers. Right. Um, they're often persecuted, uh, marginalized in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. So that that's the first contrast. Right. Uh, the second one is the race and ethnicity question. Mm-hmm. So think for a lot of immigrants that arrive in the US you quickly learn about the racial hierarchy sure yeah so how that um, affects your daily life mm-hmm. you know um, yeah that that's my starting point mm-hmm and I think that you'll yeah I, I, I believe that you'll find the those situations of racial hierarchy or opportunities or you know even reasons why you migrated here can affect your life while you're here in the United States Exactly. Um, whether being a refugee or, you know, um, maybe choosing to come over here to be an, um, you know, an economic immigrant or for, you know, work opportunities or whatever versus being forced <laughs> to, to go somewhere. Well, precisely. And that's, you know, an increasing number of um, anthropologists are taking what we call a bicultural approach. And we talk about, you know, carrying our history in our bodies and how past experiences may become what we call embodied mm-hmm. so that something that happened in our past may impact our health and well-being today. Yeah, definitely. So I think that's a good um, sort of law in the conversation, uh, a good stopping point. We're going to pause for another quick music break, and then we'll be back talking to Laura about what she may um, think her future holds. Hey, Bulls, you're listening to Bulls Radio, WUSF 89.7 HD3 Tampa, 1620 AM on campus and streaming worldwide at bullsradio.org. You're listening to Anthro Alert, and we are back talking to Laura Kilstrom, a PhD and PH um, student here in the Department of Anthropology, and we've been talking about her work um, locally in the Tampa Bay region with the um, Hunger Action Alliance uh, as well as some of the other research that she's done um, or work that she's done in Ethiopia and kind of touching on what she, uh, well, wrapping up before our break, talking about what she may do for her dissertation or kind of the ideas that she's um, she's toying with as as she develops that um, more solidly. So now I, um, I'd like to ask Laura, Going back, um, talking about her dissertation, uh, we know Anthro Alert. We're all about um, applied anthropology and and communicating with the USF community, but also just the community at large about the value of an anthropological perspective and ways that it can be applied. So, Laura, um, we were talking about issues of you know the cultural hierarchy for immigrants um, or the racial hierarchy for immigrants when you come here. Um, you know whether you're a refugee or or you're immigrating for other reasons, 
how um, how are these questions that you're you're thinking of or um, maybe you're going to approach for your dissertation? How do you what's the applied aspect of these of these questions? Do you think? Well, I hope uh, the information or knowledge I <coughs> I gain in the study can. Sorry. Uh oh, <laughs> that's right. Here on Anthro Alert, when we talk a lot, your throat gets dry. And that's okay because it happens to all of us. It's happened to me. It's happened to Renee. You have some coughing fits. It happens, and we work through it. Um, I think I'm back. All right, and Laura is back with us. I am back. So I hope to be able to produce um, <clears throat> some type of recommendations for uh, public health workers or, you know, <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's okay. Um, recommendations that would help us fight health disparities because mm -hmm. those health disparities are very widely documented. Yeah. Um, so something along those lines for public health officials, but also, you know, I love writing, so producing public writing either in the form um, of a book or blogs or something that mm -hmm. um, reports my work back to the larger public. Yeah, which I think is really important, particularly for anthropology, because there's not... There's not a, a ton of that, and I think even the writing that is trying to be geared to the public is just, it's still too academic in, in my view, and, and and there is a balance that needs to be struck between sort of telling, reporting the truth and, and not, not diluting the information so much that it loses its essence, but also making the writing understandable to someone that you know isn't a PhD student in anthropology. <laughs> That's the challenge, and and to share a personal story. So when I worked in Ethiopia, um, I blogged a couple of days a week, mm -hmm. and that was my my hobby, and I loved that. And and it was no problem for me to to write stuff in a concise way. Mm -hmm. And then I started my PhD studies, and I I well maybe it's also the time constraint, but I also felt just completely. Um, unable to um, give any swiping statements anymore. I felt that I've, I'm reading too much. Everything is too complicated. I, yeah. I can't say anything about anything. Right. Which is, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, I can definitely relate to that. Um, we, at least I do, I kind of get in my head about things um, when I'm writing something, you know, everything is so, I don't know if this is just because we're anthropologists or what, but you always think of like the what if this and what if that and think like you said, things are so complicated that if I just say like, okay, here's the answer, then you're going to get all kinds of like <laughs> critiques or, you know, I don't know. It's just it's so difficult. It but really I, is. But I think it's super important to go out there, join the conversation because there are a lot of mm -hmm. um, important viewpoints we can bring. Right. And I think there's ways to say, like, this situation, yes, is, is very complex and there's no easy answer. But in another sense, there are, like, we can't just use that as a cop-out. And there are ways in which you can incrementally start um, kind of not only looking for for solutions, but also conveying the complexity of, of a situation while still sort of breaking it down in an understandable manner. Absolutely. Yeah. And the public loves know creative nonfiction yeah books so yeah absolutely. We, need, we need more of those out there from anthropology yeah and um you know i just started my mph as as well as you laura and um you know we read a lot of the creative nonfiction or the books that are are nonfiction but written for the public and some of them are really fantastic 
Um, you know, they're they're giving you great information about public health and public health issues, and they're not really watering down the complexity all that much, but they're writers that you can tell care about the issue and are not just flooding you with statistics, but are writing it and, you know, they're introducing a, a narrative into these complexities, and it, it's fantastic. It's like, fantastic, yeah. and it's a great skill. I think the backlash and, and the reason why so many... Um, academics are unwilling to do that is because you then you get the critique from your peers right yeah mm -hmm. and they they say you know it's more complicated than right. that you're simplifying things so there's right. this, this constant struggle of how how public yep. you want to go mm -hmm. yeah because i mean i think a lot of those books or at least in public health you know they're they're doctors or public health professionals or journalists or you know whatever and so maybe there is still some critique but i don't think it's anywhere near what you'll get from from academics especially if you're an anthropologist i think particularly you might be <laughs> it could be brutal it, it could be it could be real brutal um so we're we're uh wrapping up the show we're kind of running out of time we're having a great conversation but <laughs> we're uh wrap things up so quickly laura um we also like to ask our um our guests on the show what they have um what their plans are for the future after they graduate um so would, are you looking at doing maybe a professorship, going back into work that you were doing previously? What are you, What are your plans as of as of now? I dread that question. Yeah, so, don't we all? Because <laughs> <laughs> it changes. Um, so I know I have a deadline for my studies because my I'm a non uh, citizen. So my visa expires in 21. Yeah. I hope to graduate by then. Sure. Uh, there are days when I absolutely think I want to be um, in academia all my life. Yeah. And then there are days when I think practical stuff, more hands-on stuff, is what's what's more fun. Yeah. So I can't I can't say it could be either or it could be a think tank. Um, you know, whatever gives me enough challenge mm -hmm. um, on a daily basis. That's a perfectly acceptable answer because that's my daily struggle. Changes every day. <laughs> so I wonder if there really are people who who can give you a definite answer. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know if they are. They're. I, I envy them because some days I'm like, I just need to work. I'm so burnt out of school. And then some days I'm like, I need to be like PhD. I need to get my research out there. Right. Yeah. So, and I don't know. Glad we're on the same. It's the, it's the graduate student struggle. Yeah. Okay. So wrapping up the show, any final thoughts, Laura, any takeaways that you would like our listeners to, to really grab onto? Well, keep on listening to this awesome show oh, by Spencer you. and Renee. Thank you. And uh, if you're interested in food um, studies, food systems research, we've just recently uh, established a new student organization. Yep. And we have our first meeting this coming Friday, September 22nd, okay. 2.30 in the afternoon in the Social Sciences Building, um, Social 30. What's the name of your organization? It's Food Studies Research Initiative. Okay. FSRI. Awesome. And um, Dr. Himmelgreen, which is the advisor of that group, also, um, also mentioned them when he was on. We'll be putting the information um, for that student organization as well as the, the time for their first uh, general meeting on anthroalert.com where you can get more information about Laura and her research and a link to her USF professional page. Um, and you can get a summary of the show. And this, this episode has been recorded. And if you do not know, um, we are starting to publish these um, broadcasts on anthroalert.com. Um, we're 
it's on it's on delayed, but they get published every week Wednesday at three. And so I think we're up to episode four on the website. Um, so eventually this episode will also be on the website so you can go and listen to those older episodes and be familiar with um, Anthro Alert and listen to all of our great guests that graciously come on here and talk to us about what they're doing and what they're interested in. So if you'd like to look more um, look more at the guests that we've had, feel free to go on to anthroalert.com and we will see you next week. Have a nice weekend.